Tēnā koutou katoa, kei te whakarongo mai, koe ki te reo irarangi o Aotearoa, me te moana nui a kiwa. This is Pacific Waves. Kia orana, ko Lydia Lewis teia, a karongo mai. Coming up. There are concerns for the safety of New Zealand hostage Philip Mertens as conflict escalates in West Papua. Also, we've definitely been very stingy. We speak with Professor Stephen Howes, who believes Australia is out of step for spending aid money on the Pacific Games. And later on, the waves must have been at least 85, 90 metres high. We have the latest on another astonishing finding following the record-breaking Hungatonga Hungahaapai eruption. There are renewed concerns for the safety of New Zealand hostage Philip Mertens in West Papua as fighting between Indonesian security forces and his captors, the West Papua Liberation Army, intensify. New Zealand's Prime Minister Chris Hipkins has confirmed he's received reports of increased military confrontations and is again calling on the Papuan separatist group to release Mr Mertens, condemning any use of hostages to make a political point. RNZ Pacific editor Kuroi Hawkins has been covering the unfolding situation. This unverified footage of Indonesian soldiers under heavy fire emerged over social media on Saturday, shortly after reports of a major confrontation between Indonesian military forces and the West Papua Liberation Army fighters holding Philip Mertens hostage in Dugama, Highlands Papua. New Zealand Prime Minister Chris Hipkins says he's aware of the reports of increased military activity. When pressed on whether Philip Mertens was still alive, this is what he had to say. Um, that is my understanding. Um, obviously, um, I'm reluctant to share too, too much in the way of details, whilst that's a, a very live situation on the ground. The rebels claim the 36-member Indonesian military patrol had been sweeping villages in Dugama on Saturday in search of Mr Mertens and that theirs was a retaliatory attack. They claim to have killed over a dozen Indonesian soldiers and taken nine captives with the rest of the Indonesian soldiers escaping into the jungle. The Indonesian military command has been downplaying their losses. Speaking in Papua on Wednesday, Indonesia's military chief, Yudo Margono, confirmed the bodies of four soldiers had been recovered from the area where the finding occurred and five wounded Indonesian soldiers had also been rescued from the jungle, with many still unaccounted for. Earlier in the week, the commander announced he was upgrading the operational status in Dugama to ground combat ready. The West Papua Liberation Army commander for Dugama, Egyanus Kongoya, has released multiple statements urging Wellington to intercede with Jakarta and de-escalate tensions in the region. In a statement received by RNZ Pacific this week, the West Papua Liberation Army says the Indonesian military has commenced airstrikes on their positions. They said this further increases the chances of Philip Mertens being caught in the crossfire and again appealed for Indonesia and New Zealand to respond to their request to negotiate with them for his release. Chris Hipkins says the New Zealand government's message to the hostage-takers 
is clear and simple. Which is that they should release the hostage, they should let him get back to his New Zealand family um, who are very anxious to see him again and to know that he is okay. He should not be tied up in any political disagreement that they have. Leaders of the political wing of the West Papua Freedom Movement have also urged the separatist fighters to release Mertens, but still blame what they describe as Indonesia's illegal occupation of their lands as the root cause of the situation. The Susi air pilot, Philip Mertens, was taken hostage in February and his aircraft torched. The rebels claim he breached a no-fly zone order they'd issued weeks before. I've been instructed to read this statement. No foreign pilots are permitted to work and fly in Papua until Papua is independent. OPM requests the United Nations to mediate between Papua and Indonesia to work towards Papuan independence. OPM will release me after Papua is independent. That video statement from Philip Mertens read under duress, surrounded by armed West Papuan Liberation Army soldiers, was received by RNZ Pacific on the 10th of March. At least one more video statement has been released since, with multiple photos of Mr Merton surrounded by his captors, who say they've made repeated requests for Wellington and Jakarta to negotiate Merton's release, but say they've received no response. The Australian government has been told it shouldn't help fund a sport event from its aid budget. The director of the Development Policy Centre at the Australian National University, Professor Stephen Howells, is taking issue with Australia providing funding for the South Pacific Games in Solomon Islands from its aid allocation. The Solomon Islands government is being strongly supported by China, but Australia is providing 17 million Australian dollars taken from the annual aid allocation of 103 million Australian dollars. Professor Howes told Don Wiseman about the concerns he has. The government was asked through the Senate estimates process how it would be funded and it did admit at the end of last year that it was going to be from the aid budget and yeah, that's really what I'm raising questions about. The first question is whether it's actually in line with the aid rules. Uh, you know, the, the OECD or the Western countries have agreed on a set of rules for what counts as aid and what doesn't. And there's a pretty explicit statement that expenditure for artistic, musical and sporting events, you know, can't be counted as foreign aid. Now, um, you know, the Department of Foreign Affairs that runs Australia's aid program has said, well, in fact, this expenditure is going to have longer term benefits. But, you know, when you look at some of the detail that's been released, it talks about a temporary Marine Centre. It talks about positions for the Games Organising Committee. It really does seem that a significant amount of this expenditure is for the Pacific Games later on this year and so really doesn't comply with the uh, ODA or aid uh, rule book. We should say that some of this money is going to go to school dormitories and they're going to be uh, refurbished and upgraded. So that definitely is something that's going to be of use after the event. Yeah, that's right. So that's DFAT's argument that these things will have longer term uh, impact and, and like you said some of them some of them probably will but or whatever detail has been released whatever's been made public some of the items you know like a temporary marine center it's very hard to see how that's for any purpose other than supporting these pacific games and therefore uh, violate the oecd rules and you know i think that's 
unfortunate. You know, we shouldn't, obviously, we should be sticking to the rules, but also, you know, we should be seen to be following the rules because there are always contentious issues. It's in our interest to have a clear set of rules around aid and to have those rules followed. And also, you know, as a government, as a sort of a middle-sized power, I mean, we're, we're often talking about the rules-based international order, so we should certainly be seen to be adhering to the OECD aid rules. Yes, the motivation for Australia to spend this money, provide this money, is essentially because it's in competition with China, isn't it? They're not thinking necessarily of the Solomons here. Yeah, I think that's right. I think I, I think the Solomon Islands government did approach Australia, did ask for funding. So, I mean, we are responding to a request. But as far as I can tell, this is the first time that we have used the aid budget to support the Pacific Games. So it does speak to the strategic environment in, in which we live. And yeah, it's very clear. I mean, Beijing is funding the Pacific Games. And in fact, they're putting in a lot more than Australia is. So I think it's uh, it's fair to say that without that competition with China, we wouldn't be using our aid money in this way. And, you know, I just want to say that no doubt that's an important strategic goal for Australia. But the, the fundamental objective of the aid program is and should be to reduce poverty. And it's very hard to justify that from this point of view. So as well as the issue around the rules, I think there is a question about what is the aid program really about. And you you can look at it from a Solomon Islands perspective. I mean, Solomon Islands is a very poor country. They have lots of immediate needs that you might rank higher than the Pacific Games. But then we should also look at it from a global perspective. You know, we are living in an era of humanitarian crises and Australia isn't responding by increasing our aid budget. In fact, we've seen uh, just in this last week, the newest figures from the uh, OECD suggesting Australia is now, I think, the fourth least generous aid donor out of 30 OECD donors. So we're not a generous aid donor, and we've definitely been very uh, stingy in our responses to some of these really big crises around the world. So, for example, if you look at the Pakistan floods, we've provided 10 million. And if you look at the uh, the Turkey-Syria earthquake, we've provided 18 million. So those numbers, you know, you can compare those against the 17 million that we're giving to the Pacific Games. And I think it, it really does bring into question our priorities and our, our use of aid, which, as I said, should be primarily to reduce poverty. A new report has revealed Tonga's underwater volcano disaster triggered 85-metre waves. The University of Miami and the Khalid bin Sultan Living Oceans Foundation report states the eruption of the Hungatonga Hungaha'apai volcano last year was more powerful than the largest US nuclear test. It involved the collaboration of scientists from numerous agencies, including NASA, NIWA and Tonga Geological Services. Final Fonua spoke with Professor Shane Cronin, a co-author of the report, who says it's another astonishing finding. This report is really interesting. It says that the waves were up to 85 metres. Is that correct? So, um, right at the source of the tsunami, uh, the uh, near the Honga volcano, the waves actually topped up and over the two small islands that are at the edge of the caldera, so the Honga Tonga and Honga Hapai. The waves went right up and over the top of them, and, and so the waves must have been at least uh, 85, 90 metres high to get over those uh, those two islands, yeah. And how did you uh, measure that? 
We were in the field with the Royal Tongan Navy and also we chartered a, a, a local fishing boat and uh, with the Tongan Geological Services we went around measuring uh, all the places where the tsunami ran up using drones and also using um, survey equipment. I've read in a lot of these articles out of the of different science agencies about that it's astonishing that the casualty rate was relatively low are the scientists astonished uh, do you think that's the do you do I think, you th- I think we are definitely at the beginning uh, of the event we were astonished that the casualty rate was so low later um, when I spent a, um, a lot of time over there in 2022 I was there for around four months doing the follow-up surveys and I understood why the casualty rate was so low and part of the reason was very good uh, public education for many years around the dangers of tsunami and so the other lucky thing was that the eruption and the tsunamis all took place uh, on on the Saturday afternoon and it was um, all observed, the, the eruption was observed and easily seen by everybody so that meant that many people were able to see the eruption and heard the eruption with the loud booms, and so they immediately did the right thing and followed the training and moved inland. And I also read in the research that the the seafloor reduced the intensity of the waves. Could you expand on that? Yeah, yeah, it is true. So basically, when the tsunami wave is traveling through very, very deep water, uh, the wave is not so high, it may only be a few meters high. But when it comes against shallow water, uh, it, um, it, it, the wave rises up, but it also loses a lot of energy. What happened was then the tsunami wave uh, hit this uh, um, very shallow, extensive portion of reef, and then the wave hits this area, and the wave becomes high initially, but it loses a lot of its energy. So by the time it gets to Nukualofa, the wave had been uh, dissipated by the shallow water. Um, for you personally, as a scientist, what was struck you the most? Is there anything about this study? What's the most revealing thing for you um, studying this event? I think the most revealing thing for me is um, the resilience of people and the resilience of the Tongan community to cope with this huge disruption and destruction and uh, cope in a smiling way and help each other throughout it and throughout the evacuation. From the science perspective, one of the main things that taught me is that everything we knew about uh, submarine volcanoes or volcanoes underneath the ocean, uh, everything we knew about their explosive power and so on, um, was completely thrown out the window. And then we we realize from this eruption that, uh, you know, there's a whole type of uh, activity, volcanic activity from submarine volcanoes that we never imagined to have happened. And so now we've seen this example uh, and we can now start to understand other other types of volcanoes and, and the similar types of hazards they have around the Tongan, Kermadec and also the Vanuatu regions in particular, um, we start seeing some other places where there might be similar types of volcanoes. So it's really opened our eyes to a different type of hazard. 
The first New Zealand government Pacific mission since 2019 has come to an end. Deputy Prime Minister Carmel Sepuloni says it has been all about reaffirming Aotearoa's commitment to work alongside the region. Joining me is Susana Suisuiki, who joined the delegation. Talofa Sana, welcome back to the country. What exactly did the New Zealand government achieve in this mission? Kia ora, Lydia. Yes, it's great to be back in the country. The Deputy Prime Minister in particular stuck to her belief to ensure that this mission was about strengthening New Zealand's partnerships with the Pacific. And this was seen through her bilateral meetings with all three of the country's leaders, five announcements of New Zealand committing millions of dollars to each of the countries across various sectors such as climate change, youth programs, and even the Pacific Games. But in saying that, there were some gaps with the program. I understand being open to flexibility and changes to the program are expected. There was no media stand-up at the end of the mission. I really believe it was a missed opportunity for the Deputy Prime Minister and her ministers to provide an insight of how they felt about the mission and perhaps answer some of the other queries surrounding all of the announcements that were made. What did the locals in the region have to say? Yeah, the response from the communities across three nations were consistently positive. I did sense there was a lot of trust and faith in the New Zealand government. I mean, on top of that, with Carmel Sepuloni being the first Pacifica woman to be the Deputy Prime Minister of New Zealand, it did send out a strong message of Pacifica representation in spaces where it's predominantly Pākehā. But in saying that, a few locals had touched on a few things which I felt could have had a stronger response from the government, such as a visa-free travel to New Zealand. You know, countries such as Japan, Greece and Germany are considered visa waiver countries, and yet not one Pacific country is on that list. Also, interesting to note that with geopolitical tensions rising, the New Zealand government prior to the mission had acknowledged it was a Pacific issue, But during the tour, there was no clarity around the the fence deal such as AUKUS and even China's influence in the region. Vinakavaka level, Sana, and look forward to having you and hearing you back on Pacific Waves next week. And that's Pacific Waves for today. To listen back, head over to rnzi.com slash programs or you can download us on Spotify, iHeart or Apple Podcasts. From myself and the team here at RNZ Pacific, kia manuia.